Ezekiel chapter 26 tonight, friends. Once you have your place there in Ezekiel, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Again, if you can't find Ezekiel, if you have trouble, just open your Bible to the middle. You'll most likely hit the Psalms. Psalms is so big, you'll probably hit it and just flip to the right past Proverbs and, and uh, Jeremiah and Ecclesiastes and Isaiah and you'll hit Ezekiel, Ezekiel 26. Let's read the opening verses 1 through 11 uh, by way of introduction, and then we'll backfill what we just read for a few moments. Everybody ready? Ezekiel 26, verse 1. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, since they said that, therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves." They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So that's a summary of what's going to happen to Tyre. And then the next five or six verses, God gets specific. For thus says the Lord, verse 7, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, and with horsemen, and with a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland, he will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls. And with his axes, he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached." With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to this ancient prophecy about uh, an ancient foreign people uh, about which we are largely unfamiliar We are in the middle of a strange book of prophecy written um, uh, some 2,500 years ago about events in the world that are taking place um, across the ocean uh, on the other side of the world. We come to a place regularly in a book like this one in your scriptures where we say, what's this about? Why is this here? Why does it matter to me as a 21st century Christian uh, and so, Lord, help us. Help us to understand the purpose of this being preserved as your inspired word. Inspire our minds to understand, our hearts to be pricked uh, by your voice, 
and our wills to be molded to go and accomplish your will. For Christ's sake we pray and in his name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, if you were here last week, you will remember a particular word, intermezzo, spelled with two Z's and no T's, intermezzo. And intermezzo is a play in between two acts of another play. Or, in musical terms, it's the ripping guitar solo that seems to have nothing to do with the song. All right, an intermezzo. It's a, it's a related but unrelated performance in the middle of a performance. Does that make sense? So an intermezzo in the book of Ezekiel is found from chapters 25 through 32, where the first 24 chapters, God is revealing himself and calling his prophet Ezekiel. He is pronouncing judgments over his people Israel, and then suddenly he shifts gears and God's attention goes off the nation of Israel and on to the nations of the world. And then chapter 33 comes around, act two, if you will, and God's attention shifts back to his people, Israel. So there's this unique portion right in the middle of this book that is all about the nations of the world. The emphasis on this section, we noted all of it falls under this banner. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Israel had sinned and violated God's law. As the children of God, they knew the rules. They lived in the house, but they broke them anyway. And while the other nations of the world certainly broke God's law, they worshiped foreign gods. They offered their sons and daughters as human sacrifices to their false deities. They worshiped the goddess of pleasure. While they violated God's moral law, the first spanking comes to the children because judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And we noted how that is a picture of the way that God deals with his children, both in the Old Testament, in the church age, and in the judgment at the end of the age. First, God deals with his children, 1 Thessalonians 4, with the rapture of the church. And our sin is dealt with at the cross, applied in our glorification to its final extent. Salvation is nearer to you now than when we first believed. The salvation, the final application of the blood of Christ, where sin is dealt with for the children. And then comes the nations of the world gathered at the great white throne of judgment. Right? Salvation, the judgment begins with the house of the Lord, but it never stops there. It eventually comes around to all the nations of the world, either those under his covering of grace or outside of it. And so this whole section is all about that concept. That big concept of God deals with his children, then he deals with the rest. Chapter 25 is the first group of other peoples that God deals with, right? Shifting from Israel to the other nations, the first group uh, is addressed, it's a group, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the two um, descendants of the daughters of Lot, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau and the Philistines, who are various descendants of Ham. 
God judges these groups, or you should say pronounces judgment on these groups in chapter 25 because of their celebration of the fall of Israel and because of their own sinfulness. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord, but it doesn't stop there. Now, just as God used the sword of Babylon to discipline Judah, so too he directs the army of Nebuchadnezzar against these peoples as well the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines. Now we noted again how this is a big picture of God's judgment. Well, that theme continues in chapter 26 through 28 when God deals with a particular people group called the Phoenicians. It's impossible to spell, so if you're taking notes, just P-H-O dot, all right? (laughs) A people group called the Phoenicians. These chapters, 26, 27, and 28, they reinforce a few basic tenets of God's character and they point forward prophetically to some of what unfolds in the end of this age at the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. Tonight we're going to deal with some of the practical aspects how they point to God's character. Next week, we're gonna deal with how these chapters point to some of the unfolding events at the end of time, as we know it, if you will. But before we do that, we have to ask and answer one critical question. Who are the Phoenicians? Right, we talked about who the Ammonites and Moabites are, descendants of Lot's daughters. We talked about who the Edomites are. We talked about who the Philistines are. Well, who are these Phoenicians? The Phoenicians are the people who occupy this city of Tyre. So who are they? Well, settle in. Ready? (laughs) The Phoenicians are an ancient people who settled and built cities all along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, primarily along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea where Israel is. And then they expanded over time across the northern tip of Africa, not in Egypt, they didn't take over Egypt, but uh, west of Egypt, up in the northern tip of Africa, into what's called the Gibraltar Strait, which is this, this, this very narrow strip of the sea that separates the Atlantic from the Mediterranean Sea and almost connects Spain to Africa, the Gibraltar Strait. They expanded over into Spain and into some of the islands in the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean is riddled with large and small islands, some of which Paul mentions in his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. So this is who they were. They were ship-building, seafaring people. In fact, they were master craftsmen at building ships, and they were masters of the sea. There's the North Star, which is called the Phoenician Star, because they believe historically that that the Phoenician people navigated the Mediterranean Sea using the topography of the coastline, along with their ability to read the stars and use the North Star to traverse and be masters of the Mediterranean Sea. Homer and Herodotus praised their sea craft and their seamanship in their writings, they were unrivaled as the naval superpower of the Mediterranean Sea for over a thousand years 
in ancient history. So these are some pretty legit people, right? Well, it goes on. There is even some archaeological findings of ancient Phoenician ships in North and South America, in Brazil and like Massachusetts, something in Nevada even. Somehow it made it from the coast perhaps all the way into Nevada through, you know, I don't know how, crows. I don't, you know, I don't know. But it's not likely that the Phoenicians were exploring out to the Americas, but perhaps that in their navigating out of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic to do trade with Great Britain, that they got caught in a storm, cast out into sea, and wound up on the ocean currents headed to the, the amber waves of grain. Their high point in terms of their influence, wealth, on the world stage was between the years of 1500 BC and 300 BC. Now this is a very meaningful period of time for the Christian and the Bible student. This means that this people group, they began, they, if you will, they were rising to power and influence around the same time that Moses was standing before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. So while Moses is escorting the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, navigating the desert regions for 40 years, invading the land of Canaan with Moses and Joshua, throughout all the years of the judges with our stories about Gideon and Samson and Deborah, into the prophet Samuel ushering in the era of the monarchy with anointing King Saul, David's expansion and military might of Israel's borders, Solomon's immense wealth, having queens and kings come and listen to him speak and establishing trade partnerships and many wives and all kinds of nonsense all over the broader world from Africa and the Mesopotamia. Through that, through all of the biblical kings that we read about in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, most of which were horrible, idolatrous, wicked men, Ahaz, for example, through Hezekiah's miraculously extended long life where he, he funneled a particular spring outside the walls of Jerusalem, under the ground, and into inside the walls of Jerusalem, the pool that's called of Siloam where Jesus healed a man, right? Through Josiah's reforms, through the Babylonian captivity of God's people, the people come back to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's the guy's name with a Z, Dom? We just studied, Where's, what's the guy's name? Zerubbabel, thank you, Zerubbabel the rebuilding of the walls, the rebuilding of the temple, the, the reestablishment of temple worship in Israel, and then the beginning of the silence of God not speaking to his prophets. Listen, essentially what we consider the Old Testament, the entire timeline of all of that stuff that's like precious biblical history to us, these, these people the Phoenicians were ruling the seas and the coastline of the Mediterranean. Do you get the picture? All right, so this was a pretty remarkable group of people. 
During all that time, they were amassing wealth and power. They developed what's called the Phoenician alphabet, which was at the time an absolute revolution in language and writing. They were the first to develop a form of language that had an alphabet that was associated with it a sound. Before that, all the ancient languages that were written down were symbols that represented a word or a place or an idea. And it would take a lifetime for an individual, a scribe, to learn how to properly, masterfully draw out these intricate symbols. And then, once they were sent somewhere, they, were, they meant different things in different parts of the world. So the Phoenicians come up with an alphabet that has a phonetic element to it, a letter has a sound, and it unified communication across the entirety of the Mediterranean, the Phoenician alphabet would go on to be the basis for the Hebrew language, the Greek language, who adopted it and added vowels to it, the Latin language, the Mongolian language, the Tibetan language, and of course, here we are right now speaking some form uh, a, a rather grotesque form of English, uh, uh, according to the Brits, you know what I mean? Uh, the English language, right? So these were impressive people, sophisticated, but also brutal. Also brutal. Now remember, for the entirety of what we consider the Old Testament, basically, these people were amassing wealth and power along the coastline of the Mediterranean. How they did so was multifaceted. Two of their primary sources of income were first through the slave trade. The Phoenicians were apparently, uh, they became quite adept at kidnapping. So they would just use their ships and their shallow ships and their, with their speed and they would run up on a coastal town or a home or an individual and they would just snatch them and then they'd take them across the sea to some other country and sell them into slavery. Well, over time, this earned them a pretty rough reputation and so they resorted to buying slaves instead. And so the whole of the ancient world was buying and selling slaves, whether it was because uh, a parent needed money so they would sell their kid into slavery, or um, tribal warfare meant prisoners of war, both in Africa and in the Arab states of the Near East. If, you're a, if you lose a battle back in the day, you basically become a prisoner of war, and they would sell you into slavery or make you a slave. And so there was no shortage of slaves and there was no shortage of people who wanted slaves in the ancient world and the Phoenicians were the middleman. They were Dunder Mifflin for the office fans, right? They don't make the paper, they just sell the paper who need to people who need it, right? So they were pretty brutal people. Now, the other way that they leveraged their sea superiority to gain wealth was through the development of purple dye. Purple was extremely rare in the ancient world. And while the Far East, in the Far East China, they had developed means of dyeing things purple, the Phoenicians were the only ones on the Mediterranean Sea who had unlocked the secret to the color purple. 
Now, I'm not a big fan, right? <laughs> but imagine a world, if you can, where the color purple is so sought after, so expensive, that if you were a member of a lower class and you were caught wearing something purple, you'd be executed for doing so. Because here's the assumption. You couldn't have possibly afforded to buy that. So you must have stolen it or killed someone of royalty, wealth, influence, and power. And so if you're found with something purple, you're executed on the spot for it. Can you imagine that? So purple was kind of a big deal. Not only was it a big deal, but the Phoenicians carefully and meticulously guarded the secret for the making of purple things all the way up until, if you will, the height of the Roman Empire where a particular individual, his name is like Palabius or something like that, he published a, a letter of some sort explaining how it's done so that the Romans can make their own purple things. But for a long time they had the secret and they wouldn't share it with anyone and so they, they were able to make this purple dye and sell their purple goods to the Brits and to the, what we would call the Spanish, what we call the Italians, uh, the people of Turkey, the Hittites, the Africans in Egypt, the Cushites who were below south of Egypt, and they amassed major wealth for themselves. Well, let's talk about how. How did they make this purple dye? It's fascinating. Again, by dint of their boating process or prowess, they could harvest a particular sea snail whose excretions, when exposed to air and sunlight, turned into a vivid purple dye. Then they used it to, you know, dye all kinds of linens, and they made uh, a king's ransom on them, traded goods, and then they used their boats and all their trade ports that they set up around the Mediterranean to just buy, sell, trade, buy, sell, trade. And so purple was rare, expensive, a symbol of royalty in the ancient world. And so it makes sense that when they mocked Jesus, hailing him as the king of the Jews, they wrapped around him, it's written in the scriptures, a robe or a cloak of purple. It was uh, essentially the, the height of an ironic mockery to put on this poor, condemned carpenter the clothing exclusively regarded as that for a king, right? Yeah. So, they amassed great wealth over the centuries. With their wealth, they built big, beautiful cities. They fortified them with high walls. With their wealth, they expanded their navy. And while they weren't conquerors in the ancient world, they were feared for their naval prowess. The Phoenicians invented the keel, which allows you to build larger and more stable ships. The Phoenicians built battering rams onto the front of their naval vessels, and they used a combination of oars and sails to speedboat into their enemies on the sea and just ram through their ships. Isn't that fascinating? Now, as a result, they became quite proud of themselves. They were shrewd negotiators. And so, therefore, during this whole time, while ancient Turkey, Mesopotamia, 
And while this, this part of the world, north and east of Israel, was constantly changing hands, from the Hittites to the Assyrians to the Babylonians and the Persians, the Phoenicians maintained a level of independence. They would work in cooperation with these places, but, but they were able to leverage their naval might to not have to completely surrender to these empires. They weren't, however, a centralized nation. In fact, they never called themselves the Phoenicians. They would merely call themselves by the city or nation state from which they're from. So if you're from the city of Tyre, you're a Phoenician, you're a Tyrrhenian. If you're from the city of Sidon, you're a Sidonian. Later on, when they established the city of Carthage, which is another famous city in the ancient world, you'd be Carthaginian, and so on. So they didn't have a centralized government. It was more like fiercely independent but allied nation states, much like the Philistines, by the way, when you read Samuel. But while they had no centralized government, they did have, if you will, the crown jewels of all their cities and settlements, the, the grandest, the most beautiful, the most heavily fortified, the most centrally or importantly located. And one such city was like the capital. It was the, the creme de la creme. That city is the city of Tyre. Second, second playing second fiddle, the city of Sidon. And so, in chapters 26 and 27, when God addresses Tyre, he's addressing the heart of the entire Phoenician people. When he addresses Sidon in chapter 28, he's addressing the second most important city in all of the people of Phoenicia. By speaking to these cities, he's essentially speaking to this entire people group. But back to our original question, who are they? Who were they? You can't say who are they because they're wiped off the face of the earth by the Romans. But who were they? Well, the answer is really simple. They are Canaanites. They're Canaanites. They're descendants of Noah's son, Ham, who would go on to be named after their significant forefathers. We read of them all the time the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Gibeonites and the Hittites. They were more broadly just known as the Canaanites. They were descendants of the eldest son of Ham. In Genesis 9, Noah curses the descendants of Canaan for his father's actions. And what this is meant to portray in the Genesis account is a character defect, a, a low morality that was, if you will, in the heart of Ham, that would be passed down to all of his descendants for many hundreds of years in many different offshoots and people groups. And indeed they were wicked, idolatrous rejectors of the God of their forefather, Noah, the Canaanites. A few hundred years into the Phoenicians rise to power as they're developing the alphabet and they're developing their ship and naval prowess. 
in marches the Hebrew people. They drive these people out of what we call the land of Israel, and they are primarily consolidated to the north in what we call today Lebanon. But at the time, it would simply be called Tyre and Sidon. So that's who we're talking about, and that's what you can imagine visually as the people of Israel drive these nations out, they consolidate north of Israel's borders, and from there they attempt and begin to reestablish themselves and spread. However, as a result, they hated the Israelites, right? They hated them. They drove them from their land, they drove them north, they drove them off the coast, and they hated them. Fast forward about 800 years, 1,200 years, and Babylon destroys Jerusalem, and they celebrate. Right? Okay, now... For me, that's super fun, right? (laughs) For you, it might have been super boring. I don't know. But to me, it speaks a lot about what's going on here in Ezekiel chapter 26. Let's reread this with all of that history and backdrop. In the 11th year... That is, the 11th year of their captivity, and many commentators agree, the 11th year is also the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. The 11th year is 586 B.C., when Jerusalem is utterly destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gate of the people was broken, it has swung open to me, I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Interesting, right? I shall be replenished. They were fierce, they they fiercely hated the Israelites for driving their ancestors from their land. Therefore, verse three, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, as the sea brings up its waves, interesting, as the sea brings up its waves to a people who are naval powers. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. Make a little note of that just for fun later on. She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. Make a note of that for later on. For I have spoken, declares the Lord, and she shall become plunder for the nations and her daughters, look at this, on the mainland. Why is it on the mainland? Her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Note that for later. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord, I'll bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and horsemen and a host of many soldiers, He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland again. Hmm. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with axes he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached with the hooves of his horses. This is interesting. He will trample all your streets. It's not just that they'll march in. 
He will trample them. Note that for later. He will kill your people with the sword and all your, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. A couple of things about this before we move on to the next few verses. Number one, uh, God does not like the wicked rejoicing in the judgment of his people. God does not like the wicked rejoicing in the judgment of his people. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, in part, reads, Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Tyre is rejoicing not in the truth, but in iniquity, which is to say they think that they are morally superior because of God's judgment over Israel. And God's about to say, no, 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 no. They also believe that they would prosper in the downfall of Israel. But I love the proverb in Proverbs 24. This is a good note for all of us uh, come election season and things like that. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. That's a good word almost any time. Now, Ezekiel prophesied this in the 11th year at the destruction of Jerusalem. History books tell us that in 585 BC, the very next year, King Nebuchadnezzar began his siege of Tyre. They were a proud, rebellious people. They were strong in their navy, wealthy, fortified. They were not interested in being ruled they would cooperate, but they would not be ruled. And Nebuchadnezzar says, cooperate and submit. And they say, no. And that begins a 13-year siege of the city of Tyre. And when Nebuchadnezzar entered the city after that long and expensive siege, he wanted to make an example of them to the other Phoenician nation states. And so he destroyed the city. He, his, remember the, the trampling of the hooves remark? I mean, he, his objective was to make an example of them so that their neighbors would look and go, okay, you got it, Nebuchadnezzar. We're on your side. And so his, his intent was to ensure that the city could never again be inhabited by the people. And so he laid waste, brought the whole city down. However, during the 13-year siege, the Tyrrhenians, with their naval capacities, they made their way just a short distance off the shore to an island. And they, during the siege, reestablished a city. And so while everyone didn't get out, and many Tyrrhenian citizens were left to face the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar, by the time he entered the city, there was no plunder. They had taken it all offshore, and all the nobles offshore, to an island. That's the history books. And then you go back to Ezekiel, and what is this about, again, her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Almost as if Ezekiel had some sense of what's about to happen 14 years from now. You with me? Because 
Not the island, but the mainland. Fascinating, isn't it? And so Nebuchadnezzar entered the city. He was furious. There was no gold. There was no loot. They had taken their ships. Well, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a a ship-faring cat. And so after destroying the city, he moves on. And the people of Tyre would rebuild and refortify this new island city just off the coast of the old, now destroyed city. And they would live there, secluded from King Nebuchadnezzar, for 200 plus more years, continuing their dominance of the Mediterranean Sea, continuing to amass wealth through the slave trade and through the selling of purple wares, But it seems that God's not through with them. Look with me at verse 12. A change in pronouns takes place. God's prophecy continues. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timber and soil, look, they will cast into the midst of the waters. And I will stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres shall be no more. I, shall, I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Interesting. It goes from he, Nebuchadnezzar, to they, verse 12. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. A man, a, a little guy, named Alexander the Great. So you ready? If, you've, if, you've, if you're already full of history, sorry, there's more coming right now. All right, fire hose, mouth, engage, okay? In 322 BC, when Alexander the Great, the Macedonian unifier of the Greek peoples, was marching his Greek army after already defeating and subjugating Egypt, marching them north through the land of Canaan into what would be considered Phoenicia, if it was named that, he comes across the city of Tyre off the coast. Only the Greeks had ships. They didn't have the naval prowess of the Phoenicians, but they were seafaring folk for sure. Well, Alexander had his 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 eyes set, if you will, on the Persian capital. And he would go on later on to confront King Darius, who's mentioned in the scriptures, and defeat the Persians at, if you will, the, uh, near their capital city. The, 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 it's called the Battle of Gabalabagoja, something like that. I can't... Huh? No, no, Susa's the capital, uh, uh, the battle is, the, the, it starts with a G. I, can't, I just can't remember how to pronounce it. It sounds like Golgotha, but it's not there. It's not in the Bible, it's in the history books. But 322 BC, Alexander's marching his way up, you know, through the Fertile Crescent along the coast of the Mediterranean. He's headed to Persia, but he, he's concerned about leaving this Phoenician city fortified off the coast of the Mediterranean with all their ships and his back, if you will, with his whole army is turned this way to Persia. Meanwhile, Greece is that way across the Mediterranean Sea. 
And he's like, I can't leave this naval superpower and go fight the Persian king. And so he approaches the city of Tyre. And he says, listen, how about this? Let's just make a deal. You be on my side and uh, I won't destroy you. And they're out there on their island and their massive walls, having already thwarted the efforts of King Nebuchadnezzar a couple of hundred years earlier, they laugh at his offer. He says, I'll make you one last deal. He sends emissaries to try and go negotiate. You know what the Tyrrhenians do? They execute the emissaries. They throw their bodies over the wall into the ocean below. Alexander says, all right, fine. So he goes along the coastline and he confiscates some ships from some other areas that he, they had essentially subjugated. This was the ancient world, you know? Like, you, I be, you belong to me now because I have a bigger army than you. And they're like, all right, cool, don't, don't destroy us, we'll just do what you say, okay? He gets some ships, they attack this city, it's a total disaster. Alexander's army is defeated, his ships are lost, they retreat to the coastline, and he says, all right, fine, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna build some earth. <laughs> There's a sandbar between the ancient city of Tyre on the coast and the island city of New Tyre. It's about six feet under the water, but it's there. And he says, all right, here's what we're gonna do, fellas. We're gonna take all of this rubble from where Nebuchadnezzar destroyed this city a couple hundred years ago that had never been rebuilt. We're gonna take this rubble and we're gonna start building some more earth. They, as the scripture says, they threw their boulders into the midst of the waters to make a land bridge to march his army across the water to then siege and destroy Tyre. Oddly, exactly as these opening verses describe. Oddly as the prophecy exactly describes. The same as Babylon, the same as Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great sought to make an example out of, out of Tyre. He didn't want anyone else giving him a hard time. None of the other Phoenician neighbors thinking that they could stand up against Alexander the Great and the great army of the Greeks. And so he made an example of them as well. And he so destroyed the island city that still to this day, it is uninhabited. And you can go today. Here's a picture right here. That's the land bridge Alexander the Great built on a sandbar out of the rubble of ancient Tyre. And you can still go there today and there's really, it's nothing. It's just fishermen mending their nets. Exactly as the prophecy says. Destroyed. Wiped off the face of the earth. Beyond all measure. So Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled the first 11 verses. And 240 years after Ezekiel made the prophecy, God fulfilled the rest of it through Alexander the Great. The, the rest of chapter 26 sort of reinforces this, but I just want to get through these three brief points of observation. 
This should remind us of a couple of things if you're taking notes just really quickly. Number one, when the Lord says it, it happens. It's not a sophisticated point, but look, when the Lord says it, it happens. Yeah, that you, right. It doesn't have to be complicated or, or you know, Phoenician in its, you know, explanation. If you look at chapter 26, eight times in total it says, thus says the Lord, or I have said it, it will happen. The Lord said in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 14, in verse 15, in 19 and 21, eight times. If the Lord has said it, it will happen. Well, then that makes you wonder, what else has the Lord promised? He promised to utterly destroy Tyre, and he did it twice. Right? What else has he promised? Revelation eleven fifteen. he promised to return in power and glory. First Thessalonians four seventeen. he promised to rescue his people. Romans eleven twenty six. he promised to redeem Israel. Revelation 20, verse 4, he promised to rule the earth for a thousand years. In Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, he promised to judge the whole world. Or how about this? Philippians four nineteen. he promised to provide for his children. John 14, 16, and 17, he promised to indwell his children with his own spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, he promised to sanctify his children. If the Lord says it, it happens. And so let us have confidence as we watch history unfolding, fulfilling the words of the Lord. Let us have confidence that everything else God has promised to do, he will do. Yeah? Point number two, consider God is in no hurry. He's in no hurry, right? You're going you're gonna to retreat to an island, build a new city, no problem. From verse 11 to verse 12, he, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 12, they, the Greeks. Also, not just they, the Greeks, but they, the Romans. Because in a few hundred more years, the remnants of those who survived the massacre of, the, of Tyre and Sidon, Carthage over there at the northern tip of Africa becomes the new capital of the Phoenician people and they attempt to resist Rome and Rome wipes them off the face of the earth to the point that now no one knows almost anything about the Phoenician people. Their libraries were destroyed. They didn't carve things in stone. They wrote them on papyrus. And when Rome destroyed Carthage, it wanted to make an example out of them. Just like Alexander, just like Nebuchadnezzar, to the point that this people group is almost more mysterious than they are historical. The only thing we know about them is what's written about them by their enemies. And as you know, in the ancient world, you know, he who wins the battle writes the history, right? And so we note, friends, that just because it's been, you know, 14, 13 years of siege with, that, with Nebuchadnezzar, 200 more years of prospering in the island city of Tyre, or another couple hundred years over in Carthage, God's in no hurry. Delay ought not to incite doubt. I love this Second Peter. I quoted this from Sunday, but... Second uh, Peter three eight uh, is the whole that that's, that portion that says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is but a day. The time does not work. But listen to how Peter says this: the Lord is not slow to keep his promise, as some understand slowness. You think this is slow, 
the Lord says, this is happening exactly as I decide. And then finally, number three, um, when the Lord says it, it happens. He's in no hurry. And then finally, number three, God uses the natural to accomplish the supernatural. Today, there's a new city of Tyre, but it's located several miles north on the coastland, far away from the ancient site. Archaeologists who have uh, excavated and rummaged around and explored the area, they found a freshwater spring in the ancient, ancient city of Tyre that yields 10,000 gallons of fresh water a day. And they marvel that there's no city there. Look at verse 21 of chapter 26. I will bring you to a dreadful end and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again. Right? There should be a city here. Look at all this fresh water. If the city was destroyed here, it should be rebuilt here. Do you know what tells are? Not in poker, in the Near East. You know what a tell is? A tell is a mound. You know what's underneath the mound? Layers, yeah, layers of destroyed cities. Because when you got a good location, you build back better, as our president would say, right? You build back on the same site. And so it's crazy as they excavate underneath these cities in Jerusalem and, or in Israel and the surrounding regions, they find essentially layers of civilizations. Because when you got a great spot, you just build a new city on top of it. And yet, it was never rebuilt again. Yeah. So... God uses the natural to accomplish the supernatural. They were made into an example, and they didn't try to reboot. Friends, while there is much to learn from these chapters symbolically, as we'll see next week, about the potential unfolding of the end times, what is certainly reinforced here is aspects of the nature of God's character. When it says, when God says it, it happens... God's plans and actions are right on time. And as he governs his world, let us, let us not uh, ignore the way the natural unfolding of events is often accomplishing his supernatural hand of guidance, both in the ancient world and in our time today. Well, let's meditate on that this week, and we'll come back to it next week. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for not only the scriptures, but uh, the manuscriptural evidence, the archaeological evidence, the prophetic evidence, and the scriptural evidence that gives us confidence that we aren't merely reading a religious text. We are reading the inspired, inerrant word of the God of all creation. And as we do, may we see in it uh, the, the majesty of your might and your wisdom. Let us uh, wholeheartedly uh, submit gladly and say, Whew, I, I'm glad that that's the God that I know and serve. That's the God whose side I want to be on. Mostly, that's the God whose will I wish to accomplish. May it be so in us evermore. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. Good night.